right, this morning we kick off our study in the book of Job, and if you are an eager beaver who has already begun to read our sort of supplementary book to this, then you're going to be way ahead of me, depending on how far you got, because we need to spend a couple weeks, or at least one week, looking at Job as a book, as a piece of literature, before we dig into the content of Job, so that we better know how to understand it. Job is a great book for Christian study. It's a challenging book. It's a challenging book in part because of the subject matter, but also in part because it's a long book. There's a lot here, and there's a lot of repetition in Job. And so it can feel like, yeah, get on with it. We know this is the problem. Let's hear the solution. There's suffering. There's complaining about suffering. Where's the solving of the suffering? And this is really one of those books where um, those of us who are more kind of get from point A to point B, solve the problem, can be pretty frustrated because the solving of the problem in Job is the journey. It's not the solving of the problem of suffering. It's the helping the follower of God to walk through that suffering and to walk through that suffering with an eye on being drawn closer to God rather than driven apart from him. And we want, some of us tend to want more simplistic answers, more direct A to B solutions, and this is not the book for that. Um, before we dig into the text, like I said, let's talk about some of the technical details, the, the when uh, it was written, the, the uh, how it's organized, the where this took place, those kinds of things. And then I do want to do a little bit of a rabbit trail, either at the end of this week or perhaps bleeding into next week, on poetry. And I'll talk more about that as we get there, but the vast majority of the book of Job is Hebrew poetry. And it would be good for us to go into this book with a either new or refreshed understanding of how to read poetry and how we handle that a little bit differently from prose at times. Some of you will love that part. It's kind of the sophomore lit part of the class. And some of you will be saying to me what some of us are saying to Job, which is get on with it already. When do we get to the answer part? It's okay. Let's talk about the date. When did these events take place? Or it's also a good exercise in just how we date a Bible book in general. And of course, the answer is we don't know for sure with a great deal of precision what we can do is narrow Job down to a range. There's a boundary here that the book of Job sets for us if we pay attention. First is the early boundary. So what's the earliest part of the timeline where this could be? Well, as you read the description of Job's life and the time in which he's living, it really reflects the time of the patriarchs and especially the late patriarchs. So if you think about you know, go about all the way back to Abraham. That's probably 1800s, 1700s BC. Isaac, 1600s, 1500s. Joshua, 1300s. Samuel, 1000s. That's kind of our really early timeline there. And the language and the conditions of Job fit that late uh, patriarchal uh, period. So, for example, uh, Megan, would you read Job in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3? There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. So as that 
as that language is describing Job and the time in which he lived, that's early language, both describing his circumstances, that he has this great manner of wealth and he's not a king like Solomon, but also that his wealth is described in terms of what? What does he have a lot of? Animals. <laughs> he has a lot of animals. Well, that's a type of description of wealth that's pretty consistent with the, the patriarchs. Um, Megan, also read verse 5. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. If Job is making burnt offerings and sacrifices on behalf of his family, what doesn't exist yet? The system of priests and sacrifices and temple worship. And he is being the priest for his family. Uh, that suggests that he's not in the time where he would go and ask a priest to offer sacrifice on behalf of his family. Uh, so before the establishment of the priesthood and the sacrificial system seems to fit what's happening here. Another clue about what where we are in, in chronological history comes from Job's death. Matt, would you read Job 42, 16? And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his son's sons four generations. So how long did he live? A long time. <laughs> and the trajectory of lifespan in the Old Testament is from these super long lives, Adam and Eve, to gradually and gradually shorter lives until it kind of settles, uh, you know, in, in the sub 100 range. And then maybe through technology or whatever else will bounce back above that. But the general trajectory of a human lifespan is not longer as we get through history. It's short because of the cursed world that we live in and the consequences of sin and the decay on our bodies and our souls. Um, so the length that Job lived pushes this onto the earlier side of things and also the way his death is described. So Megan, would you get, read, I'm sorry, Kathy. Kathy, would you read uh, Genesis 25, 8? Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And then read 35, 29. Genesis 35, 29. That was Abraham's death. Now we'll read Jacob's death, 35, 29. Isaac breathed his last and he died and was gathered to his people old and full of days and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. All right, now Matt, read 42.17 back in Job. And Job died an old man and full of days. You hear that? You hear the way that death is described for Job is very consistent to the way that death was described both for Abraham and uh, and for Jacob, and just a, a, a generally patristic—sorry, uh, a, a, a generally, uh, yeah, patristic patriarchal description of how death happens. So, the the Hebrew text itself, which we won't dig into, and I know you're highly disappointed, but the Hebrew text itself 
uses language, spelling, grammar, word choice that is consistent with how the language is used uh, in the time of the patriarch. So if you held the language of Exodus 15 or Deuteronomy 32 up to the language of Job, you'd see a lot of similarity, a lot of overlap. All of that evidence sort of establishes for us this early boundary. Okay, mid to late patriarchal period is one boundary for when Job was written. Then the book of Job also establishes a late boundary through, well, it's not, I guess, through the book of Job. It's actually through the book of Ezekiel. Stephen, would you read Ezekiel 14, 12 through 14? And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. Ezekiel is prophesying this. We we're pretty good at dating Ezekiel. And so Ezekiel's prophesying God's judgment coming on Judah around 586 B.C. If Ezekiel, in that prophecy of judgment, references Job as one of these faithful saints of God, then we've got 586 as a pretty firm boundary on the other end for Job must have come in between those two. I'd also say just the feeling of the Hebrew text. I talked about the, the type of the writing being consistent with the, the patriarchs, but it's, it's specifically consistent in the opinion of the scholars who've persuaded me, which by the way, whenever I say my opinion on something that's really heady, like Hebrew mm -hmm. poetry, what I mean is the opinion of the scholars who persuaded me because they know things and then I read their books. It's, it's very consistent with the, the language of wisdom literature, the wisdom of Psalms and Proverbs, which is late patriarchal period specifically. So for example, Daphne, can you read Job 7.17? What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? And then read Psalm 8, 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Renee, can you read Job chapter 28, verses 20 through 28? From where then does wisdom come, and where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living, and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth, and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight, and apportioned the waters by measure. When he made a decree for the rain, and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Now flip to Proverbs 8. I'm going to cherry pick a couple verses, but read verse 1. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? Read 22 and 23. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. And 32 and 33. 
And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, and do not neglect it. You hear the parallels there? The writing of Job is reflecting not just the wisdom of the the Psalms and Proverbs and sort of that late patriarchal wisdom period, but because, of course, that's biblical wisdom. That's truth. So we would expect that to be consistent across the whole Bible. But even the language, the, the phraseology, the, the, the terms that are used is very consistent between the two. So while we know the date of Job falls somewhere, just given our boundaries, between 1400 and 600, I think we can even dial that in a little bit more specifically, not with, not with absolute confidence, but we can, we can feel pretty good about the type of text we're dealing with here. Also, just as a where Job fits in the canon, I think it's easy for us to forget sometimes. We, we know the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, or the law, the Torah, and then we've got these history books that we think about, and we've got the prophets, and then we've got what the Jews called the writings, the wisdom literature. And it's often, I think, easy for us to get forget that the same category of books that has songs, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, has Job. That that's where Job fits in the groupings of biblical books, and that it is a piece of wisdom literature as a, as a category, as a genre. And so we'll talk a lot more about that later today. Questions about the dating, although I fully admit, I've told you all I know. <laughs> so I'd be fascinated by what question you have, because I would say, that's a good question. <laughs> Let's talk about the place. Where was Job? Uh, Megan, will you read Job 1-1? There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Well, how easy is that? Where was Job? Uz! Where is Uz? Nobody knows. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, we know a couple of things. Uh, Megan, read verse 3. He possessed 7,000 sheep, that one, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that his, this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Aha! It's in the East. It's in the East. We know it's of the East. It could mean northeast like south of damascus if you have a mental map of the ancient near east which if you do you might want to get that looked at um, it, the the locations of his friends and the descriptions that we get of his friends situation suggests more the southeast near what scripture calls edom so if i had to guess i would put him down near edom but don't know for sure, just know that he was a man of the East. Genre. This is where we get into the important for interpretation stuff. What kind of book is Job? What kind of literature is this? Because then that gives us some instruction about how we read it and how we interpret it. I've said it's wisdom literature. The One of the most unique things about Job for being a book of this length and a book that we think of immediately, and not wrongly, as historical narrative. It's a story about a person and a bunch of things that happen to a person. So our minds go to historical narrative. When you actually open up the text of Job, you find some historical narrative at the beginning, some prose, and you find some prose at the end, and then you find chapter after chapter after chapter of poetry in the middle. Just lots and lots and lots of poetry. 
So we have to look at the arrangement of the text, and scholars who are really good at this, the best, a name you may have seen before if you've studied this kind of thing, is a guy named Robert Alter. He is a uh, he's of Jewish background, but he is not a believer. He's not a person of, of any type of, of saving faith. He's the most brilliant ancient Near Eastern Hebrew textual scholar I've, I've ever read or come across. I think people a lot uh, more learned and smarter than me agree on that. And he, people like him, help you look at kind of the arrangement of the text and figure out from the way it's organized what type of text is this. And one suggestion that'll come up a lot, and I mention these just because if you do extra reading on Job, if you read from another commentary or from another book about Job, it may make these suggestions. So I want you to not be surprised if I say something that's that's contrary to those. But one that comes up a lot is that Job is a disputation or what we would call a lawsuit. It tells a backstory and then it brings a charge and then the charges are adjudicated and there's a, uh, a settling of the dispute at the end. And a lot of people have looked at Job and said, that's what we have here. We have the circumstances of Job's life that lead Job to bring a charge against God. All of that is adjudicated through the cycles of conversations that take place. And then at the end, God renders his verdict in kind of 38 and following. That's neat. And there are certainly aspects in certain passages where this somebody's on trial vibe comes through. But Job also has very strong elements of lament, which is its own type of genre. We're most familiar with it through the Psalms, the how long, O Lord, idea. And as you read through what Job is wrestling with, don't you get the feeling of a lament, a cry of the heart of an individual approaching God for the redress of his pain? It becomes about justice in points, but is this a book primarily about justice? Job's pain, Job's suffering seem to be what drive, what drive Job's addresses toward God. Um, one, of the, one scholar called Job the dramatization of a lament, which I think is a really cool expression because it's a, it's a story, it's a deeply personal story from a person whose heart is broken and who does not see the connection between the God he knows to be true and the things that are happening in the world around him. And that's the, the heart of his lament. However, we can't go too far down that path either in terms of saying that this is a lament because if it were a lament as a genre, then that would mean the central theme of Job is the problem of suffering. And while Job's suffering is the crisis of the book, as I said at the beginning, I don't think it's right to say the purpose of the book is to give an answer to the problem of suffering. That doesn't seem to play out. Job offers perspective on suffering, but we can't say he offers a solution to it. And think about God's responses in the book of Job. How much time in God's own words, where God is the one speaking in Job, how much time does God spend talking about Job's suffering? Not much. 
God doesn't have much to say about Job's suffering specifically. And so I'm persuaded by those who suggest that what Job is, it's what is what's called a wisdom debate, and that Job's suffering just happens to be the, the central cause that makes the debate arise. So it gives us the impression that it's in the, the center of things because it's the occasion that brings about this teaching and these discussions. But the teaching and the discussions, the central theme of the book, is not about that. That's just the occasion. It's about Job's response, that he'll maintain his integrity and persevering in that response. It's about the way God responds, and it's about this back and forth, where is wisdom to be found? Which, again, is the main question of the wisdom literature. It's the question that we read from Job. It's the question that we read from Proverbs. It is a central theme of the Old and the New Testaments. And certainly, uh, we get that. It's, it's fulfilled in the personification of wisdom in Christ, in the Word made flesh. Right? Uh, so why wouldn't, in any of those corners, you have Satan and his power? I will talk about Satan, but it's because, it's a great question, it's because <laughs> Satan is not very important in this book. It so is. It's not that Satan is a non-player in the book, but it is pretty amazing in a book where we think primarily in terms of God permitted Satan to do this. That's a big deal. Satan is a big part of this story. Satan is a part of this story. But where in Job does Satan disappear? I think it might be three. Is it, is it one? It's real early. He comes back because they have a second dialogue after the crisis. That's not one. Two. Yeah, two. two. He does come back after And Satan isn't brought up again. So I'm not saying Satan is no part in this, but it's in the way Job is laid out, if he were a central character or a central theme, he'd come back. There'd be some further addressing of that. Uh, and there's just not. So we'll get to that when we look at some of those texts. And it doesn't as well. even mention that Satan's talking through the friends. That's right. It doesn't even really bring that up. No, and you have to, that'll be a fun analysis when we get to it is we all know how bad Job's counselors are. But how bad are they? Are they, how bad are they? So we'll look at those. It'll, it'll be a lot of fun. Yes. Good questions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that'll be fun as we look through it is what's the role that, that they play? How bad are they? Are they necessarily mouthpieces for Satan, as I've heard some people suggest? Or are they people with good questions and bad answers? Yeah. Well, they were there, too. I mean, presence. That's right. The, the, the ministry of presence. I mean, whether they were. Yeah, they could be idiots, but they were present idiots. <laughs> We oftentimes are idiots when we're in the presence of somebody that is suffering, right? I mean, now you've gone to Medlin, Pam. Right, that's right. Well, where does faith go in the corners? I mean, perfectly. Yeah, and this is not meant to be, I'm sorry, I didn't mean this to be an exhaustive okay. list of all the themes in Job. I meant to show you, we tend to think of Job's suffering as the theme of Job, and everything else is accessory. But Job's suffering, his crisis, is just, the, the technical term is the occasion. It's what brings about the discussion on all these other important things. They're where all the things we theoretically know to be true get 
brought to life, get brought to bear, and everything you've ever said so easily, I know this is true. A situation like Job's says to you, okay, let's see. Because it is true, but it's about to be really hard to believe it's true. Whereas before, it wasn't so hard. But Satan's goal is to get Job to question God, or to question God, or to be, to, to, not, to not trust God. To not trust God, maybe. Is that the goal? And then the friends are, 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 are helping that strategy. I mean, they're, they're also trying to detour him. And he's saying, no, I'm sticking with God. God's the only game in town, not, not moving. So wouldn't they have to be part of Satan's strategy? We'll see. <laughs> That's a long class. Yeah. <laughs> My goal is to give unsatisfying answers. Is there another example of uh, poetry where you have dialogues? Like, is that common in, uh, in the poetry we, we don't see a lot of? Yeah, in fact, we're going to, in just a couple minutes, we'll really dig into Hebrew poetry, and it'll probably it'll probably flow into next week. But the comparisons between modern poetry or modern American poetry, especially in Hebrew poetry, is more of a contrast than a, than a compare. Uh, but it's a, it's a good observation. Let's talk a little bit about the arrangement just to kind of wrap up the how things are organized and how the book fits into this wisdom debate category. Because the question is, where is wisdom to be found, especially in a crisis? especially in times of suffering. And so, as I said, you've got prose, poetry, prose. Prose is this uh, prologue. The book begins with the historical narrative, prose-based prologue. What happens to Job that brings up this existential crisis and these questions? And then the book has these cycles of speeches. One person speaks, another person speaks, another person speaks, rinse and repeat. And you go back to the beginning of that cycle and do it again. And then the ending of the book, the epilogue, is also prose as it kind of gets uh, woven together. So the prologue sets the stage for what will transpire in the dialogues that will follow. We're given the information in the prologue that the characters of the book do not have, which is a big benefit for us. We're going to go through the book of Job knowing things that Job and his friends do not know. And it's because we have that prologue that explains to us how all of this came about. So that's very useful for us as readers for teaching purposes. Prologue is the first couple of chapters. So chapters one and two. And it begins with the introduction to Job, the first five verses. That's what Megan's read. And then we get the heavenly drama, which we'll cover either next week or in a couple weeks. But that's chapter one, verses six through 19. And that is this. Uh, Satan and God and this attack on Job situation that, that comes about. And what's important about this is the introduction of a really key theme. Jake, can you, Job 1, can you read 20 through 22? Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Right. This is a key theme that's going to carry throughout the book of Job that it's easy to miss because it's such a famous and familiar passage. God is worthy to be worshipped despite the blessings, or not despite, apart from the blessings that he gives. 
Because that's the theme of Satan and God's dialogue, isn't it? Where God says, I'm worthy of worship. That's why Job worships me. And Satan says, no, you're worthy of worship because you give him all this nice stuff. Take away the nice stuff and watch what he does. And Job himself, at the very beginning, sides with God on this theme. God is worthy of worship apart from the blessings that he gives. Or not blessings. And that's going to be really, uh, really critical. Then in uh, chapter 2, you've got this, this more heavenly drama that takes place between God and Satan. And then chapter 3, you've got Job's lament. And then that's the end of the prose for a long time. Because then from that, from chapter 4 to 27, there's just these cycle of speeches. Um, Eliphaz, and then Job. And then Bildad, and then Job. And then Zophar, and then Job. And then start over. Eliphaz, Job. Bildad, Job. Zophar, Job. And then start over. There's a third one. Except in the third cycle, there's no Zophar. There's Eladab, uh, sorry, Eliphaz, Job, Bildad, Job. And then, now we're at chapter 27, so you have this, you know, my fantastic drawing ability. I was going to draw like a little circle. I'm just going to write cycle. This is the cycle of speeches. And then they're interrupted in chapter 28 with this poem on wisdom. That's what chapter 28 is. And as I said, it interrupts what had become a pretty familiar cycle to us at that point. Then you get 29 through 31. This is kind of Job's last stand. It's really his last speech, but you know what I mean. And then uh, 32, you get Elihu. From 32 to 37, you have Elihu and his speeches. That's not right. That's the H, isn't it? That's the who. Put a Spanish twist on it. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> and then in chapter 38 to 42.6, who takes over? God takes over. That's God's speeches. Also, Job's responses to those speeches, which tends to bring about more speeches from God. <laughs> All of that is poetry. And it's not until you get to 42.7, to the end of the book, verse 17, that we're back to prose and the epilogue. Sorry that I spread that across two slides. I'm still adjusting to making it all fit. But that's our structure here. We've got the prologue, which is prose. Job's Lament, which is prose. The poetry starts in chapter four. Cycle of speeches. The third cycle is interrupted by this wisdom poem. And then Job's last speech. And then we get Elihu's speeches, God's speeches, Job's response. And the epilogue, we're back to prose. And that's the organization of Job. Uh, Job's lament 
The Bible has it indented like it does the other poetry. Chapter 3. That's, you said prose. Yeah, that was my recollection too, honestly. <laughs> but uh, my notes had elsewhere. So if it's indented, we'll go with poetry. Okay. It, I mean, it reads like the rest of the yeah. poetry. Yeah. As we said last week, trust your indentations. <laughs> they are some very helpful editor's assistance to us on what's happening here. Questions about Job's metadata, the who, what, where, when, the structure of the book itself. You might have said this at the beginning, but do we know like any authorship on Job or no? Job. So he, oh, okay, he wrote it himself. We don't, because we don't even know precisely when this got written down okay. or how far this is removed. There's certainly information in this regarding the dialogues that it's very difficult to understand who else would have that level of information. Right. So we have no reason to doubt that that is the case. Probably who wrote So Jews would accept Job, right? Mm-hmm. I accept Job. <laughs> well, I know, but I mean... <laughs> As Job. <laughs> yes, they would too. Um, any other questions about that? And then let's jump in on poetry a little bit. All right. Because so much of Job is poetry, and because most of us don't read a lot of poetry and ancient Jewish poetry to boot, (laughs) I want to spend some time here before we get into the text, because it's really going to help us, I think, be better readers. As we go through this together, I can't, I'm not going to teach from every verse of Job. I hope over the course of this class, you will read every verse of Job. And I hope you will be a better reader as you look thoughtfully at not just what is written, but how it's written, which is informative for how we're to understand it. So poetry and prose, these are sort of the two methods of communication in scripture. What's the difference between the two? And if you say one of them is indented, so help me. All right, we know what prose is, right? Prose tells a story. Prose is narrative. It sets forth a message in some ways uh, as clearly as possible, but it tells a story. That's what prose does. Poetry paints a picture. Poetry creates word imageries. Poetry wants to make you think on a level that is not necessarily deeper, but additive to the level of just the word itself. You can almost always say that is convey the factual information of poetry in prose. And when you say it in poetry, you're doing it that way for a reason. You're you're wanting to not, you're, you're wanting to communicate factual information and something, plus something. Create a feeling or create deeper understanding through imagery. But it's important to know that it's not like this is a continuum. I'm sorry, it's not like this is binary. It is a continuum. It's not like you look at something and you know, if it has imagery, it is guaranteed to be poetry, and if it cannot be prose, prose has less imagery. Poetry has more. Poetry has more structured writing. Prose can have some, 
it, it's not it's not this absolute binary like the two uh, you know aren't even using the same types of words and so we make judgments based on how much imagery how much structured language what does it seem like the author is doing here to determine where on that spectrum it kind of falls between poetry and prose. And then we do label it with the indentations as binary, one or the other. Um, it's not real hard to do, but I don't want you to think that no prose ever has imagery in it. Of course it does. We use analogies in prose, but the analogy itself, if you just take it in isolation, is poetry. It's, it's on that illustrative side. When we compare scripture, the Hebrew, the Old Testament, <laughs> to other texts from the ancient Near East, what's surprising is not that there's so much poetry. What's surprising is that there's so much prose. Think about in school, the handful of ancient texts they made you read, the Gilgamesh epic. The, we're getting ready to read the Odyssey in our book club. It's all poetry. <laughs> they weren't writing in the ancient world very many of these prosaic, straightforward narratives and histories. When they were writing at all, they were writing poetry. And so that's very consistent with the time in which the Old Testament scriptures were written. What is remarkable and helpful is that we also have a whole bunch of history, historical narrative, prose, that grounds God's word in our reality. So we can't just look at the Old Testament the way we look at ancient myths and say, yeah, it's exactly the same kind of writing, which scholars try to do sometimes. And that's super lazy from a, from a study of literature point of view, because they're not the same. Those texts don't make a bunch of historical claims about this person living in this place. They're not filled with genealogies. They're not filled with dates. They're not filled with so-and-so begets. The Bible is grounded very much in history and communicates to us with a ton of poetry so that it, it draws us into this richer level of understanding. What are the, the elements of poetry? So let's talk a little bit about some of the basic elements of poetry. Hebrew poetry, to Jake's point, is not like English poetry. <laughs> when we think of English poems, what do we think about? Sort of ignorant poetry people that we are. What do we think about? Rhyming words. We think about rhyming words. Right? That's exactly right. There's, <laughs> yeah. uh, there's very little rhyming going on in Hebrew poetry. In fact, there's no, even if you are a student of more modern poetry, by which I mean you know, Shakespeare, <laughs> there's very little meter in ancient poetry, Hebrew poetry. And you know, our understanding of at least English poetry is very much based on meter. The first thing you're supposed to figure out in poetry class is what's the meter of this poem? What's the rhythm? What's the cadence? That's not a big deal in ancient poetry. It's There is no established system of meter that you'd look at it and say, oh, this is the iambic pentameter. No, not, not really a thing uh, in Hebrew. There is what's called drop meter, which is this rhythm or regularity for a moment, where for one phrase, you're using 
that rhythm or that regularity to make an additional point as part of the poetry. So in Jonah, the down, down, down into the belly of the ship and the down, down, down into sleep and the down, down, down. Into, and the words themselves have this rhythm in Hebrew of falling, going down. Uh, you see that kind of thing. And then it goes right back to what we would say is, is chaos of meter or no particular rhythm of meter. There's a lot of poetry in the Bible. We have several full books of poetry, like Job, which is pretty close. And then we have poetry scattered throughout almost all of the books. How far in the Bible do you have to go before you get to poetry? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. For this purpose, right? You're, you're pretty early in the Bible when you hit some poetry. And it's that way throughout the Bible. If you just flip through your pages, you'll see a lot of indentations randomly happening. Uh, not randomly from the author's perspective, but from the page's perspective. Why might this be? Why do you think scripture, the historical reason is that it was common for the times in which these were written, but prose wasn't common and God used a bunch of prose and historical narrative. So why did God choose in his revelation to us to use so much poetry? I think you said it earlier, it's additive to the word itself. Yeah, I was taught that poetry speaks to our whole person. And the best kind of analogy, I think, for us, because most of us don't read a lot of poetry, which I think is a shame, is music. I think music has taken the place of poetry um, in the, just that we don't do poetry. But poetry, all right, let's not forget poetry. It does give information, okay? It's not just about making you uh, feel. It's about making you feel based on information that it is communicating. So poetry feeds our intellect. It gives us information that we seek. But it also stimulates our imagination. It, it reinforces the meditation concept by stimulating our imagination through the use of this imagery, it makes you think about what you just read a little more than prose does. The example that I use all the time is the example of uh, the, the Bible verse that talks about walking down the road and I saw an overgrown field and I considered. And then he talks about all the things that he considered on the basis of this overgrown field. Wow. A little bit of laziness ruins a field. <laughs> and that's a great point. But my favorite point of that passage is that he was on a walk and he saw a field and he stopped to think about the meaning of what he saw. And that's what poetry tries to get us to do, to stop and think about the information that we're hearing, to engage the imagination. The other thing that poetry can do is it relates experience. And by that I mean it relates the experience of the writer and the communication of that information to the hearer. You can read a book of facts and learn a lot of things, but in poetry you're hearing this person express the impact of those facts on a human life and you feel connected to that person and to their experience of those facts. And that is sort of next level in our, in our understanding of things. And then last, I would say it, it affects 
And then there's so many things you could put here. Let's put, let's put will, behavior, emotion. It's just that next level part where it takes a, a, a piece of information and it makes us want to do something or it makes us repulsed by something. Think about some of the ways the Bible in poetry describes the harlot and her cup and, this, and you sort of initially see the appeal and then, whoa, you're repulsed. It's the dregs of the cup. And it just draws you in emotionally, which is what impacts your will and your behavior. Information doesn't change your want to. It doesn't change your will. It doesn't change your behavior. It takes something more than that. It takes the information plus. I'm not saying instead of. You have to have the right information to have your will and your emotions shaped rightly. But the information by itself won't do it. It's something else, something along with that. And that's what poetry tries to get at. Calvin said, There is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here, in biblical poetry, drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities. In short, all of the emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. Whatever that feeling is in circumstances, that emotion is shared by someone somewhere in biblical poetry. You can find it. It is the full expression of human emotions with an emphasis on human emotions from God's people. <laughs> That's why singing the Psalms regularly is such an important thing for those of us that grew up under exclusively contemporary music. One of the challenges with contemporary music is that it has a tendency not to be very well-rounded. It has a lot to say about joy and happiness and complete devotion to God. I will follow God no matter what kind of songs. A lot of them, we are seeing the pendulum swing back on this a little bit, which is good. But for a long time in contemporary music, there was a real absence of sadness, feeling distant from God. Finding a contemporary song that is in the same vein as David in Psalm 51 is a pretty tough ask because that's not what they're thinking about in worship. But we go back and we look at the Psalms, which God's people used for worship for thousands of years. It's all there. <laughs> it's all there. And so you could show up to worship and you can feel in your heart, I don't want to be here because God has abandoned me. There's a song for that. There's, there's a song for that. There's a place in Christian worship where God, we can bring that before God and God can deal with that. So in order to be really good poetry readers, we need to understand, or to be good Job readers, we need to understand how to read poetry. So I'll stop there and take questions for today. Next week, I want to do just a little bit more about poetry, just some of the technical things we're going to see in the poetry itself, so that when you look at a line, you can recognize what Job is doing and what that means for how we understand it. And then we'll dive into the beginning of the book itself questions about what we covered this morning observation you can expand yeah. on more like when you, as you talk about the difference in prose and poetry and 
what it evokes in us particularly. It, it determined that Job and the Psalms are the ones we think about for dealing with suffering, even though it's probably more directly addressed in some of Paul's epistles and other things, but it, and that's important. We need that information of that's right. the weight of glory and all that, like, in this small moment here, it's like, you get all that, but you really, when you're experiencing suffering, you look to you don't want to go to Paul because Paul, as Paul does, tells you what to do. Paul tells you how to get out of this emotional mess you're in. We want somebody who's in the emotional mess with us. And so we want Job. We want David in the Psalms. We want those laments. Now, that's a little bit of an ungracious reading of Paul, which is sort of historically trendy today because Paul is in that suffering with us. And if you go back and you... Paul's just very humble about his explanations and descriptions of his suffering. But he's right there with us. He, he knows. I always grew up with a great fear of Job. Like, you know, <laughs> his um, faith depended on you having your whole family wiped out and all everything. You know, and, you know, and it was just like, oh my God, I'm being tested like that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's the, uh, my friend Mike on the trips we do up to some revolutionary and civil war battlefields he gives a talk at the battle of antietam in sharpsburg uh, and one of the one of the phrases a historian later wrote about that battle which if you just how much cannon fire there was and just the carnage at, at antietam at sharpsburg was unbelievable historically up to that point and one of the historians later wrote it was a test we all hope we would have to pass and none of us hope we would ever have to take or some version yeah, of that. Yeah, and that's kind of how we can feel looking at Job is, yeah, I, I hope my faith is strong enough. I hope the faith is certainly strong enough. I hope I am strong enough in the faith God has given me to persevere. Oh, Lord, please don't <laughs> put that to this test. Um, yeah. But but the world and the flesh and the devil do often put it to some measure of that test and sometimes extreme measure of that test. And I think it's important that we remember as we go through Job, that's why the faith has to be this strong to persevere. It's not merely theoretical. We are in the world and not of the world. The world will hate you. The the wages of sin is death and we brought this death upon ourselves. There's all this stuff that makes it inevitable that we will suffer and so the faith God gives has to be strong enough to persevere and the wisdom that God offers must be findable and must be applicable otherwise we have no hope and Job will ultimately be a book of hope it is a book of stormy cloudy dark dark surroundings through which hope uh, ultimately will persevere We're done. Thank you.